All right, so tonight we're continuing our study in the book of Romans. Uh, we are about a year and a half into this. We are winding down. We are in chapter 15 uh, tonight, verses 14 through 21. We've got about probably about four or five weeks left. And the title of our lesson tonight, as you can see, is sanctification. Now, sanctification is one of those words that you probably never hear outside of church. Uh, your, your kid's not going to come home with sanctification on their spelling test, uh, unless they're going to a Christian school, maybe then, right? Uh, you're not going to use it in an office PowerPoint. Uh, it's just, it's a Bible word, and therefore we, we hear it in church, we use it in church, but it's very rarely, if ever, heard outside the confines of the church. Now, the word sanctification, the English word sanctification, comes from uh, the Latin derivative of two words, uh, sanctus, which means uh, holy, and ficare, which means make. So the word sanctify means to make holy, or sanctification means to be made holy. So to sanctify a person is to make them holy. And we should know uh, from our studies previously in Romans that the word holy means to be set apart for God's use. So anything can be holy. Uh, 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 a tabernacle can be holy. Uh, uh, a candle stand can be holy. Uh, a, a, a vessel to wash your hands could be made holy if it's set apart for God's use. And of course, people can be made holy. In fact, the word saints that you see in the Bible which is the Greek word hagiamos, means sanctified ones. It means set apart ones or holy ones, those that have been set apart for God's use. Now, obviously it's important to know what a word means. But in this case, the reality of the word is much more important than where it came from or what it means. Now, as I said, sanctification is not a word that you hear outside of church. So you might think, well, it's not that important outside of church. The irony of it is, is that outside of the church is where sanctification is most important. In fact, it's much more relevant outside of church than it is inside of church. And we'll talk about that as we move through. And let me give you a couple of examples when I talk about the reality of sanctification. So let's say you're one of those people that always cheat on your taxes, right? You got certain income on the side, a little bit of cash here and there, and you don't report it, right? Or maybe you, when it comes time to, to put down how much you gave to charity, you know, you always fudge the numbers. Just, you know, round it up just a little bit so you can get a little bit more money back. And then one day you get saved, and the Holy Spirit begins to work on you and convicts you, and you realize, okay... That's just a lie. When I put something down like that, I'm lying. And the Bible says liars will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And you're convicted of that. And so you start telling the truth on your tax returns. That is the reality of sanctification. That's the reality of it. Let's say you're one of those who you're living with your boyfriend. Or you're living with your girlfriend. And, and then one day you come to know Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, the, the, the Spirit convicts you. You begin to see scriptures about that and realize that's not right. It's wrong. It's not, the what, it's not the best that God has for you. And so you make the decision. Either move out or maybe the courage to get married. Regardless, that is the reality of sanctification. 
See, that's where it's most relevant is, is in your behavior at work or at school or on the job or at home, much more so than it is inside the house. Now, we'll see tonight as we move through this, the reality of sanctification either exists in your life or it doesn't. You're either conforming yourself to the image of Jesus Christ and conforming yourself in obedience to His Word, or you're not. It's making a difference in your behavior, or it's not. It's usually one or the other. Now, tonight you'll see we're going to talk about that. So let's turn now to our scripture, Romans 15, verses 14 to 21. And we'll just read the whole thing, and then we'll come back. Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified, and there's where we get our, our title, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So we're going to look at three questions tonight, and we're going to try to answer them um, uh, from other aspects of the Bible as well as from Paul's scripture here. The first is this. We're going to dig a little deeper into what does the Bible say about sanctification. I've already told you what it means to be made holy, to be set apart for God's use. We've talked about a couple of examples of the reality of sanctification, but what does the Bible have to say about it? Well, it may surprise you, but the Bible speaks about sanctification in three tenses. Uh, that's something that has happened in the past, something that is happening to us right now in the present, and it also talks about sanctification as something that will happen to us in the future. So let's look at all three of these. First of all, in the past. The first time sanctification affects you as a person or as a believer is at the very moment that you are born again. The very moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you are sanctified. It, it is an initial moral change. It's a break, if you will, from the person that used to love sin to a new person who doesn't want to do that type of stuff anymore. Romans 6.1 describes it this way, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, we get this sanctification, this setting apart, because of our union with Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says this, You are in Christ Jesus, which, by the way, happens at the moment of, of salvation, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So we are set apart for God's use. We are sanctified at the moment we're born again because of our union with Jesus Christ. For example, Hebrews says 10.10 says this, And by that we have been sanctified 
through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Does everybody see that past tense? You have been sanctified. You have been set apart or made holy. So here we are as a new believer, right? I've just put my faith in Jesus Christ. I've entered into a union with Him. And because of that, I am sanctified. I am set apart for God's use. But now let's face it, we need to be cleaned up. And that brings us to what the Bible would refer to as present or ongoing sanctification. Now, this stage of sanctification or state of sanctification is going to take a a lifetime. This is the best way I can explain it. In the Old Testament, when they had the tabernacle, God set aside certain things that would go into the tabernacle, right? And for example, one of the things he set aside was what, what we see as the menorah, right? The, the, the candelabra that you always see associated with, uh, with the Jews. So think about it. God says, okay, this is going to be a holy vessel, a holy uh, implement to be used. It's, it's set aside. Well, we're kind of like that candelabra. We have been set apart to be used by God, but most of us are rusted and beat up and battered and crooked just like that, right? You've been set aside, but folks, God is, wants to turn that into that. He, he's not satisfied with having that old beat up, rusted, crooked, uh, 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 used up old candle opera. He wants to turn it into something beautiful. And that takes a lifetime of sanctification, okay? That's why the Bible also refers to sanctification in the present tense as an ongoing practical experience. In other words, we begin in our life, and the moment we're born again, I'm set aside for God's use. But then God begins to work on me, begins to change my behavior, begins to conform me to the image of Jesus Christ. In other words, to put it in plain old Southern English, He starts to clean us up. Right? He starts to clean us up. Look at Hebrews 10, 14. I'll give you a few scriptures. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are what? Being sanctified. That is one of the most amazing scriptures you'll ever run to into scripture. Do you see what it says? He has perfected for all time those who are being cleaned up. In other words, He already sees you as perfect. In his eyes, positionally, you are perfect. There's nothing you can ever do to make him love you more, and there's nothing you'll ever do to make him love you any less. You are accepted. You are forgiven. You are a child of God. That is your position. But yet, he wants to clean you up. I read a story one time years ago. It was just kind of a parable story. It was about a, a king who looked out his... his uh, looked out his window, and he looked out on the town, and he would see this little urchin boy, street boy, who would go by the, the vegetable carts, and he would constantly steal because he had to. He had no parents. He had no, nobody taking care of him. So he just stole all the time. And so the king decides one day, just out of love and mercy, I'm going to take that boy in. So he goes and he brings that boy into his house and he cleans him up and he, he puts new clothes on him and he, he puts a crown on him and just, you know, everything you have is mine. And every day, what they started in the house or in the castle, they find and started noticing food was missing. And that kid kept stealing food. Even though positionally he was now a son of the king, he had, to, he had all these behaviors. Everybody with me? He had all this baggage that he brought with him. He couldn't accept who he was positionally. He still acted like the old person. Well, that's what the Holy Spirit wants to change. 
He wants to say, come on in here and act like who you really are. Act the way I see you as a child of the king. This is what that's talking about. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being cleaned up. Philippians 1.6 says this, I'm sure of this, that who he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Act like you're a child of the king. Act like you've been set apart. Act like this is who you are. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Every day we're being changed a little more like Jesus, a little more like Jesus, a little more like Jesus. That's sanctification. That's that present sanctification. Again, this is, a, this is daily spiritual renewal. Colossians 3.10, Paul says this, And put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Every day, putting on that new self, like that little boy in that castle. I don't need to steal anymore. I don't need to lie anymore. I don't need to cheat anymore. That's not who I am. And you begin to act like it in your conduct and in your behavior. By the way, the Apostle Paul himself is no exception. I mean, one of the greatest Christians to ever live, one of the greatest men to ever live, and listen to what he said in Philippians 3.12, not that I have already obtained it or that I'm already perfect. So he looks at himself and says, man, I ain't made it. I'm not, I'm not perfectly sanctified. I'm not, I'm not sinless in any uh, shape, form, or fashion, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So even Paul in his lifetime was in that ongoing process of sanctification. Now this brings us as a segue, because Paul just mentioned it, into future sanctification. There is a third sense. We were sanctified, set apart at the moment of a new birth. We are sanctified all throughout our life, being cleaned up, our behavior being changed, becoming more and more like Jesus. But there is a third sense in the future in which our sanctification will be complete. It will be final and it will be permanent. That, that is at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Our body, our soul, and our spirit will be finally and fully sanctified. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Paul says this, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. When? at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So on that day, when he comes back, listen, the Bible tells us that we go to heaven and there is nothing vile, there's nothing sinful, there's nothing wrong in heaven. We have to be absolutely perfect in body, soul, and spirit. And he will make it that way. Now, those are the three states of sanctification. Now, I want to come back to the present state. This ongoing cleanup, if you will. And sometimes I, I use that word a lot because it's just, you know, sanctifications like this. <laughs> Some people don't even know what it means. So we just kind of think of it as, as being cleaned up, if you will. Now, this sanctification, and I call this becoming in practice what you are positionally. God already sees you as accepted and loved and perfect and forgiven. And now we're trying, we're working toward becoming what we are in practice, what we already are as he sees us. This sanctification is the ultimate goal of everything that the Apostle Paul 
uh, does. Let's go back and read verses 15 and 16. Paul says, But on some points I've written to you boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that... In other words, God has given me a ministry to the Gentiles, and this is the purpose of that ministry, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, here's the question. Which one of those three is Paul talking about? Is he talking about the sanctification that occurs at the moment of the new birth? Is he talking about this ongoing sanctification that we experience in our life? Or is he talking about the future sanctification? Well, let's let Paul explain it because he tells us exactly what he means in verse 18. He says this, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to what? Obedience. See, his whole ministry here is to bring us to obedience. So he's not talking about what happens at the new birth, and he's not talking about what happens at the second coming of Christ. He's talking about what happens in our life. His whole ministry is about bringing us to the point where we become obedient to God and to his word. So sanctified people are obedient people in Paul's mind. Okay, let me say that again. Sanctified people are obedient people. Now, this isn't anything new. We've already learned this back in Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 19. Listen to what Paul says. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now, Paul says, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to what? Sanctification. Paul says, you used to live out in the world and you gave your eyes over to anything they wanted to see. You gave your ears and you listened to things you shouldn't have been listening to. You put your, your, your feet took you toward places you shouldn't have gone. Your hands touched things they shouldn't have touched. He said, that's the way you were. Now, let your feet lead you to places that you should go. Let, let you put your hands on things that you should touch. Listen to the things you should listen to. Watch the things you should watch. Because all of that is leading to sanctification. It's leading to obedience. It's leading to that change in behavior that the Holy Spirit wants us to see. By the way, this is the same message of Jesus himself, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. He said this before he ascended into heaven, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So sanctification is occurring in our life when the words of Jesus, and, and, I, and I say not only in the Gospels, but the words of Jesus uh, spoken through the Apostle Paul, through the, the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when those words become more consistently and more fervently obeyed in our heart. I was talking to someone uh, the other day at breakfast, and we were just talking about how we go into situations now. We've been walking with the Lord for a long time, and you go into situations, and my first thought is, okay, what, what would Jesus do? What does the Word say I'm supposed to do? Not what do I want to do. It's like there's a weight sitting on my shoulder, 
That's the Word of God. And it's, it's saying, you know, hey, I'm right here, man. And after a while, you just get used to that. And so you go into a situation, it doesn't become your second thought or your third thought or your fourth thought. It becomes your primary thought. What does the Word of God say that I should do in this situation? You see, as, as those words of, of the Scripture become more and more consistently obeyed and, 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 and in our life, that is the process of sanctification. By the way, do you understand that is the aim of all Christian preaching and all Christian teaching, all Christian missions, is to cause people to obey a new commander? You were a slave of sin. You used to obey the the God of this world. Now you're different. Now you're a slave of righteousness. Now you've got a new commander, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he has left you his word to tell you what he wants you to do. Start walking in it. Start following that. That's the whole goal. Even preaching it, when when Brother Bill gets up here and, and preaches a salvation message and people get saved, it's not so you can go saved and go home and, well, we're done. No. No, it's to take that life with all that, that beat-up candelabra that's rusted and crooked and bent, and it's, it's, to, uh, it's to turn it over to the Holy Spirit, and He starts to take, make beauty from ashes. It, it's, a whole, it, it's not just about making converts. It, it's about making Christians. You know what the word Christian means? Anybody? It means little Christ. I'm a little Christ. I've got a grandson, and I was looking at him today, and he's just like his daddy, right, in a lot of ways. They should look at us and say, she's just like her daddy. He's just like his daddy. That's what the whole point of this thing is. Now, let's ask this question. Why is sanctification so important? Why is it so important? Do you understand Jesus could have just saved us and just left us alone? Right? He said, well, it really don't matter what you do for the rest of your life. I'm going to get you to heaven, but don't worry about it. But he doesn't. It's all about obedience. So the question is, why is it important? Now, I could give multiple answers here. I think it's important because it glorifies God. I think it's important because it draws other. Uh, when, when, when Christ is lifted up and displayed in our life, I think other people uh, glorify God. Other people are drawn to Christ. I think there's a lot of reasons, but I'm going to give you one. It's important because it's a sign that you have been truly saved. Okay? That's, I, I want, that's the one I want to get across tonight. Sanctification is important because it is a sign that you have been truly saved. Every so often I'll hear somebody say something like, well, hey, man, you can come down to the altar and you can get saved. And it really doesn't matter what you do. I don't know what Bible they're reading. But that's not the Bible that I read. Uh, that just, that's not, you go in the Bible and you get a, get a picture of what a Christian is. It's not somebody that confesses Christ and then walks out in the world and lives their own life. You won't find that anywhere in Scripture. We, we have a saying here in, in River of Life, true salvation equals a changed life. True salvation is a sanctified life, an obedient life. It is a sign that we've been saved. Listen, it's all through Scripture. I'll read a few. Matthew 7, 21. Jesus said, Not everybody who says to me, Lord. It's not everybody who confesses me as Lord is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The one who obeys. James 1, 22 says this, Be doers of the word, obeyers of the word, 
not just hearers and deceiving. That's, you're, you're deceiving yourself if you think I can just hear the word and it doesn't become a part of who I am. 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's what we just talked about, little Jesuses. Little Jesus is a, a chip off the old block. The apple don't fall far from the tree. That's what people should see when they see us. First John 5, 1 and 2. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever, who has been, whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Obey His commandments. Holy ones, sanctified ones, are obedient ones. They're, they're, you can't separate those, those two. You are born again, you're going to love the Father. Listen, nobody will ever be in heaven who doesn't love God. You're not going to heaven if you don't love God. And the Bible says if you love God, two things come from that. Number one, you will love His children. And number two, you'll obey his commands. That's, you do those two things, you're showing that you love God and you're showing that you're born again. So just being a hearer of the word, it's not enough. Just saying, uh, Jesus is just, just confessing, oh, I got, I got saved, I, I walked down an aisle a long time ago. No, that's not enough. You have to obey his commands. You have to walk as he walked. That is the sign of a true believer. Now, let me just make sure I say this, because sometimes when I, you talk about obedience, you have to obey, you have to change your behavior, you have to have a changed life. Some people might say, well, are you saying that obedience is required to be saved? Absolutely not. I would never say that. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's not a work in the world is going to get you into heaven. It is faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's it. It is a free gift from God. So, the rest of the Bible says you've got to obey, but it's not obeying to be saved. So what's our conclusion? Obedience is not a requirement to be saved. Obedience is a sign that you have been saved. If you're, if you're here tonight and you say you've been saved, but yet you're still doing the things you did before you got saved, you need to look at yourself. Are you in a... Listen, we all mess up. I'm not talking about being sinless. But I'm talking about a pattern of putting sin behind you and turning toward holiness. A pattern in your life every day where you're overcoming things that maybe you couldn't overcome a year ago, but now you've overcome them. You should be, you, you should be climbing that ladder, if you will. But if you're not doing that, if everything is just the same, then there's probably a, an issue with that. Because obedience always, always, always follows a true believer in Christ. Now, let's, let's turn to this last one. How are we sanctified? How do we become more like Jesus? How do we, how do we come, become more obedient in our life? Well, there are two things that you need. Number one is the Word of God, and number two is the work of the Spirit. If you just have the Word of God without the work of the Spirit, you just got legalism. 
That's all that is. You've got to have the Word of God, and you've got to have the work of the Spirit. Now, you see this in Paul's writing tonight. Look at verses 15 and 16 again. He says, "...because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, or the Word of God, or the, new, uh, or the good news of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit." So Paul comes to the people and he gives the word of God. The Holy Spirit takes that word and works in power and changes people. He doesn't do it apart from the word. He does it alongside the word. So sanctification happens in our life when the word of God is preached and taught and the spirit is poured out in power in our heart. I can come here tonight and I can teach my heart out. Pastor Henry can come up on Sunday and preach his heart out. But if the Holy Spirit don't move in your heart with power, nothing's going to happen. He has to do the work. Now, earlier, one final note before I leave those verses. Earlier I said this, the aim of Christian preaching, the aim of Christian teaching, the aim of Christian missions, the aim of what we're doing here tonight. This is the whole point of what we're doing here tonight is to bring people to obey to a point where they will obey a new commander. Everybody with me? Obedience, obedience, obedience. But I want you to notice what Paul said in verse 14. Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and say it with me, able to instruct one another. See, it turns out that sanctification is not just the job of preachers to bring the word and teachers to bring the word and missionaries to bring the word. It's your job. It's your job, husband, in your marriage. It's your job, father, in your home. It's your job, ma'am, in your friendships. It's your job, ma'am, with your children. It's your job. It, it, it's not enough. You don't, it's, you don't just bring them and, and, and say, hey, go listen to so-and-so. No, it's your job. You should be able to instruct one another in the Word of God. So what we see in this verse is that bringing about sanctification, you can't just say, well, that's, that's those that are called to do it. It's everybody's job. It's every Christian's job should be able to minister the Word. So if I rewrote that, I might say something like this. It's the aim of Christian preaching, Christian teaching, Christian missions, Christian marriage, Christian friendship, Christian families, is to bring people to obey a new commander. As a father in my home, that should be my primary number one thing I'm doing, is to make sure my children are brought up at the feet of Jesus. I used to say to the young people, listen, I, your family can't take you through the door. The Bible says that narrow is the way. Right? I can't push them through it, but I can flat shore put them right in front of it. That's your job. I'm going to put them right in front of it. I'm not going to lead them way over yonder so they got to find their way back. I'm going to make sure they're sitting right in front of it. I can't take them through it. That's just not possible for me to do, but I'm going to make sure they're as close to it as I can possibly put them. That's our job. Now, finally, I want to close with this. I want to see how, Paul, how Christ accomplished this ministry of sanctification in Paul's life. Now, I want you to understand something. Everybody's ministry is different, right? No, there's, very few anybody, there's very few of us in this room are the Apostle Paul, right? No, we're not going to see probably the things he saw, do the things he did. 
But Paul here is going to be talking about specifically about himself and how Christ accomplished bringing people to obedience through his ministry. Now, our ministries will be different, but I want to show you four things that he points out. First in verses 15, 18 to 19, Paul says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. So let me just point that out. Anything that's done through our ministry, through our marriage, through our home, it's all, all the glory goes to him. Right? It's not you. If my children come to Christ, glory to God. If if, if my wife comes to Christ, glory to God. If my friend comes to Christ, glory to God. It is is the work of the Holy Spirit. I want to end tonight with one of the most incredible scriptures uh, that just kind of defines this relationship between us and the Spirit in a way that very few other scriptures do. And it'll be the last thing on our list. But what I want you to see tonight is that ultimately, in all the work that we do, it's going to be Christ not only doing the work through us, but doing the work in us as well. So let's read that whole scripture. Paul says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Now, here's how the Holy here's how Christ did it. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, and by the power of the Spirit. Of God. Now, I want to look at each one of those things. Now, remember, what's he talking about? He's talking about his ministry and how he brought people to obey a new commander. So what I want to know is if in my life, I want to bring people to obey a new commander. How do I do it? Now, again, I won't do it exactly like Paul, but I want to see how it was done in his life. The first one is by word. Now, that's all he says. I want to make sure we understand what Paul means by the term word. Look at verses 18 through 21. I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So when Paul says Christ accomplished it by word, he is talking about the gospel. He's talking about the word of God. Paul was an incredible guy. I mean, he, he, if somebody had started a church over there, he'd go that way. He wasn't interested at all in coming along and working behind where somebody else had already been. He wanted to go where people had never heard of Jesus, where people had never seen anything, right? He wanted to go to these places because he knew Christ was equipping him to, to meet that need. So you'll notice here that the gospel gets an incredibly strong um, emphasis from Paul. And there's a good reason for that, right? Romans 10, 17, we learned several weeks ago, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. If you want somebody to come to faith, they have to hear the word of God. They have to hear it. The Bible never sets out. Remember, we covered this factor 10. We hear it all the time. Can someone come to Christ without hearing the gospel, hearing about Jesus coming and dying on a cross and offering forgiveness? Well, and my answer then was God can do anything he wants to do, but in the scripture, it says very clearly, they must hear. How can they hear? How can they believe if they haven't heard? How can they hurt if somebody hasn't told them? That's the only option the Bible gives. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of God. Listen, people, sometimes... And I've been guilty of this in our work or in our home or in our school. And and we think, well, I'm not going to say anything. 
I'm just going to live a good life. And I'm going to let them see Jesus through me. Well, listen, there's absolutely nothing wrong with letting them see Jesus through you. But I want you to know something. People are never going to be saved. They're never going to be changed just by seeing your good deeds. They're never going to be saved, never going to change if you did signs and wonders. That, that's not enough. People can only be saved when they hear the salvation message of Jesus Christ. They can only believe if they are told. That's what the Scripture tells us. That's why Paul always goes back to this. When he talks about salvation, there is one thing that is the power of salvation, Romans 1.16, and it is the gospel. It's the gospel. As simplistic as we think that may be, Paul says, there's the power. Give them the gospel and let the Holy Spirit do His work. By word, by deed. Now, what does Paul mean by deed? Well, I'm assuming Paul means I've done everything in my power to make this happen. For example, 1 Corinthians 4.12, Paul says, we work wearily with our own hands to earn our own living. Do you know that Paul was a tent maker, right? And when he would go into this... Remember, he's not going into a place where there's any Christians. He can't go to the church and say, hey, let's take up an offering. There is no church. <laughs> there is no offering. They don't know who he is. So he would go into a town and he'd start... He'd find a job. And he'd start making tents. He'd earn his own way. And he'd work all day and he'd go preach on the, in the synagogue on Sabbath. Or he'd work... I don't know where... He preached wherever he had a chance. But he, he never, and one time he even said, I won't even take an offering because I don't want people to think I'm doing it for the money. I, I won't even take an offering because I don't want people to think I'm doing it for the money. So I'll go out and work. He did everything in his power not to offend people, not to put a stumbling block in front of people. Look at what he says. We bless those who curse us. We're patient with those who abuse us. 1 Corinthians 10.33, Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. That I can bring them to that point of sanctification. So he did everything he could do. He preached the gospel, and in his own life, he watched his P's and Q's to make sure he was never a stumbling block. Then he says this, By the power of signs and wonders. Now, I want to talk about this just for a minute here tonight. What is the place of signs and wonders? Well, the Bible tells us the, play, the, the point of signs and wonders in the New Testament was to confirm the Word of God, Acts 14.3. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the Word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hand. So Paul walks into a town, they never heard of Jesus, and he said, I'm here to preach to you this man Jesus, the Son of God, sinless, came to this earth, lived, died on a cross, and was raised from the dead. And they, he, they say, that's the craziest thing you ever heard. And he walks over and says, rise, lifts up this leper, you know, cleanses a leper. He just does crazy. And they're like, wow, he must be telling the truth about this guy. It, it validated or confirmed the word that he was speaking. Listen, signs and, and wonders are wonderful, but as I said earlier, they cannot change a human heart. One of my favorite scriptures is the, is the rich man and Lazarus parable, Luke 16. You all know the story. The, the rich man, Lazarus, sat, was a poor guy that sat outside his gate. The Bible says the dogs licked his, so, his sores. It was just a terrible existence. 
And the rich man every day had ribeye and steak and shrimp and lobster. It says he, he feasted sumptuously. And then they both died. And it says Lazarus went to heaven. He went to the, the bosom of Abraham. And the rich man went to hell and where he was in torment. And he says he looked across this chasm, this, this great gulf, if you will, and he saw Lazarus with Abraham. And he said, Father Abraham, just send Lazarus just across, the, just to, for one moment, just to, just to dip his, tongue, his finger in water and cool my tongue. Just, just do that one thing. And he said, Abraham said, we can't. There, there's a great gulf fixed. And the rich man will say, will you do this? Um, will you send someone back from the dead? Let me go warn my brothers. Send me back. Let me go warn them not to come to this place. And this is what Abraham said. They have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the word of God. Let them hear that. And he said, no, Father, but if Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And this is Abraham's word. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, if they don't hear the word, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. See, it's the Word that changes people, not signs and wonders. Signs and wonders are great. They're wonderful. I've got no problem with them at all, but they'll never change one human heart. So, here's my question. Should you and I be expecting the same miraculous confirmations of the Word in my ministry as I stand up here tonight? Should I expect at the end of this, at the end of this that, that people are going to come up and just be miraculously healed and and I'm going to cleanse lepers and do all those other things. Well, I'm going to say this. My answer is yes, we should expect those things, but I don't think we should expect them in the same measure that Jesus and the apostles experienced them. Now, here's the reason I say yes. First of all, I don't see anything in the Bible, not one iota of evidence in the Bible, that says miracles have ceased. There's just, that's just not in the Bible. Not, there's not a scripture anywhere that says no more miracles, okay? Miracles still happen today. However, it seems that miracles were especially prominent in the life of Jesus and in the life of the apostles because it validated not only who Christ was and who they were, but it validated the word that he spoke. You remember when Jesus, they... They let down the guy through the roof. Y'all remember that? The friends tore the thatch roof and let the paralyzed guy down. And, and Jesus said, uh, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees said, oh, my gosh, did you just hear what he said? Who can forgive sins but God? And what did Jesus say? If you've never seen a movie with this, it's just awesome, right? It's <laughs> always my favorite part of the Jesus movies is when this happens. And Jesus said, you think it's easier? to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise up and walk. And he just reaches over and says, rise up and walk. And that man, paralyzed, walks. See what Jesus was saying, I can do this, and I can do that. God can heal, and God can forgive. The, the, the miracle confirmed who he was. That, that was. that happened all the time in the early part. In John 3, 2, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he said this, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God because nobody can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. In John 5, 36, Jesus himself said this, the works that the Father ha has given me to accomplish, 
the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me. They validate who I am. They validate the words that I say. And of course, Paul said this, who was an apostle, said this in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with, excuse me, signs and wonders and mighty works. So what Paul says is the apostles, the sign of a true apostle is they had to be able to perform signs and wonders. They had to be able to perform miracles. That was the sign of a, of a true apostle. So here's where I'll end with tonight. I think we have to be very careful as a people that we don't let the pendulum swing too far. You guys know, I know Pastor Henry and I have talked about this before. In our, in our life, we tend to go from one extreme to the other. Kind of like, you know, how hard it is for a pendulum to, to stop on the line. We tend to go too far one way or too far the other. Here's what I mean by that. Some Christians expect more miracles than they should. What I mean by that is they'll come to you and say, well, Christian, you should never be sick. But see, the problem with that is that defeats other scriptures. For example, Romans 8, 23, that says we groan for the redemption of our bodies. Why? Because we don't feel good. We're sick. We hurt. We're just like everybody else. So anybody that comes to you and says Christians should never be sick, they had not read their Bible because it happened all the time. We don't get pulled out of every situation. We're going to be persecuted. We're going to get sick. Okay? On the other hand, some Christians expect too little. We slip into a, a naturalistic way of thinking that makes no room for the supernatural. And we serve a supernatural God. I don't want to be a person that when, I'm, when I pray, I'm almost afraid to ask God for anything because I, I don't want to be that guy either. So I think we have to find that, that balance point. And I think this is the balance point. As long as we are submitted to the free and sovereign goodness of God to do whatever He pleases, I don't think God has a problem in the world with us asking for miracles. As long as we understand He's not begotten to us, that He is sovereign and He's got a plan, and as long as we're submitted to that plan, He has no problem with us asking for those things. Finally, I close with this. Paul says, by word, by deed, by signs and wonders, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the scripture I was promising you, Acts 4, 29 through 30. The, uh, I don't remember if it was Peter. I think it was here. He said this. I can't remember. He says, Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Notice what he says. God, give us boldness to speak your word. That's my job. That's my responsibility. Whether I'm a teacher in this church or whether you're a preacher or whether you're a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife, God grant us the, the boldness to speak your word. But what you do with that, that's your business. That's your business. That's on you. Anything that's going to be done to validate that word, any work that's going to be done in that person, you do that. And that is, a, that is awesome, right? We're not expected to, to do those things. We are just expected to speak the word. God does the work. Let's pray. Father, as always, Lord, we thank you for your word. What an incredible word it is. And uh, it always amazes me that I can read a passage, God, and, and when I first read it, I think, man, 
I don't even know what that means. And then I just go back and begin to study and begin to look at how simple everything is and how, how relevant it is even for today. Now, Father, if there's anyone here tonight that uh, the, the process of sanctification is not going on in their life, even as I've spoken they begin to realize that they aren't changing, that, 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 that the behaviors they were doing before they profess faith in you is the same behaviors. If that's true, then this, this night, Lord, this night, God, convict them in their heart. God, bring them to a, a true faith and a true belief in you, God. Change them in their heart, God, from a, a, a slave of sin to a slave of righteousness, to a, to a, a soldier of the enemy, to a soldier of the one true God. God, you do that. We've spoken your word. That's all we can do. That's the only responsibility we've had. We've spoken your word. Now, God, you, you glorify yourself. You do the work, Holy Spirit. You show yourself out in signs and wonders. And I'll say it again, the greatest miracle, the greatest miracle on this planet is for you to change a human heart. God, do that tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.